0: You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. At about 8pm on the night of December 12, 1911, Horatio Mould, a milkman from Rensselaer, New York, drove out to the Mourner Dairy Farm near East Greenbush. Arthur Mourner usually showed up every evening to bring him a delivery of milk. He hadn't on December 11th, and Mould just assumed he wasn't feeling well. But when, on the evening of the 12th, he still hadn't shown up, Mould decided something must be amiss, or Mourner seriously ill, and went to see what was the matter. As he arrived at the Mourner farmhouse just off Best Road, which is still there, by the way, at the corner of Best and Mourner Roads, the house was dark. He knocked at the door several times, but received no answer. Arthur Mourner may have simply been ill, but something must be seriously wrong for neither his mother Mary nor either of his sisters, Edith and Blanche, to answer the door. So with this in mind he made his way across the road to the house of Chester Ostrander, a cousin to the Mourners. He went and got Jesse Mourner, another brother, and another neighbor named Arthur Sharp. Together, the four men searched the property. Conducting an eerie search by the flickering light of lanterns, it was late evening in winter in rural upstate New York after all, they went through the farmhouse and barn, finding nothing. Then they noticed some blood splattered on a milk bucket lying near an open door to the barn. Here, Jesse Mourner suggested they search near the manure pits at the back of the barn. They went to one, moved aside some boards laid on top of it, and two bare legs were visible. It was the nearly naked body of 58-year-old Mary Mourner. Visible beneath her was the body of 23-year-old Edith. After the bodies of both mother and daughter were extricated from the pit, The corpse of 18-year-old Blanche Mourner, too, was found in the muck underneath. Coroner M.H. Strope was called to the farm to take charge of the bodies. Almost as soon as the bodies were discovered, Jesse Mourner expressed his opinion that his mother's farmhand, Edward Donato, was responsible. Edward Donato, or D. Donato, or Dennis, or Duna, or any of about a hundred other names newspapers called him, was an Italian immigrant. Only five six and about 120 pounds, he hardly looked the part of a man who would viciously beat at least three people to death and then chop their bodies with an axe. But this is what seemed to have happened. The grisly scene contrasted with a seemingly peaceful farm, and as the Syracuse Herald said on December 14th, One could not help but notice the contrast between the serenity of the cows calmly chewing their cuds and whisking their tails, and the silent men working feverishly to uncover severed limbs and heads. The newspaper had exaggerated, but only a bit. Mrs. Mourner had been chopped in the head and beaten, Edith nearly decapitated and with an arm broken, and Blanche seemed to be the least injured. The sheriff was notified as well, detectives arriving on the scene, and police in surrounding towns were on the lookout for Donato. John Schaller of Schenectady... Mrs. Morner's brother said that he didn't know of any hard feelings or disagreement between his sister's family and the hired man. The house, the police found, was mostly in good condition, except the door from the kitchen leading into the dining room was smashed and hung off its hinges. In the living room, they found a bizarre note lying on top of a piano, a note which read, Italian meat and American-made sausage imported from Rome, Italy. The note is reported incorrectly in some accounts, as reading, Italians make sausage of Americans. Near the barn, a large pool of blood was found on the ground and a hair hair comb lay in a feed box nearby. The investigators surmised one of the daughters, or the mother, had been killed, or at least attacked, there. Another had apparently been attacked at the other end of the barn, where another large blood stained in a clump of black hair was found. In the barn, a watch was found, but Jesse couldn't tell him if it was Arthur's or Donato's. Searchers had yet to find the body of 31-year-old Arthur Mourner. They at first thought he might be in the same pit where the others were, but aside from a bucket containing the women's clothes, all three were nearly naked, nothing was to be found there. Still, Arthur was nowhere to be found. But though he had yet to turn up, police did manage to find out that the last anyone had been seen at the farm was around noon on Tuesday, when one of the neighbors saw Blanche in the kitchen. After that, a light was seen on in the house around 9pm that night. The coroner had expressed the belief that the time of death was between noon and 2pm on Tuesday, making it likely that this sighting was made shortly before the murder took place. But for all that, none of the neighbors reported hearing or seeing anything amiss, despite the fact that the other homes were nearby. By now, daylight was failing, and so the searchers resumed the hunt for Arthur the next day. They finally found him the next day, under floorboards in the barn that had been carefully torn up and replaced. He had his throat slit, unlike the others. More was learned about Edward Donato. He had been hired on August 10th, according to the Empire Employment Agency in Albany. The proprietor, a Mr. Vincent, said that Donato had been in inquiring about work and had left again. Just then, Arthur Morner came in asking for farm hands, and remembering that Donato had farm experience, referred Morner to him. Some blood was found upstairs, on the banister opposite the room where Donato stayed, and also on the door to his room. Here police found a number of letters and notes. One saying he was tired of work on the farm and wanted to go back to Italy. Others provided a bit of motive and seemed to suggest he had an infatuation with Blanche Morner. The apparent obsession also seemed to be fairly common knowledge in the neighborhood. This seemed to confirm part of the coroner's findings that Blanche had been sexually assaulted immediately prior to death. He theorized she had been killed in the struggle against her attacker. But Donato had yet to be located. A Mrs. McCann, who lived nearby and who worked as a seamstress, said that he had been by her house at about 3.30 that afternoon to have his pants mended. They were torn from the knee down. She mended the pants, and Donato was on his way. This was the last he was seen. As Sheriff Cottrell put it, He has great advantage of us in point of time. One of the things that is baffling is how one man could have killed those four people and escaped. They were all able-bodied, one of them a man, and the young women were sturdy, strong country girls. Bloodhounds were brought in to track Donato, and they immediately started off toward the east. They then managed to track him to the West Sand Lake station of the Troy and New England Railroad, where the conductor identified him as a man who had boarded the train, but who, not having appropriate fare, was put off the train in in the area of Snyder's Corners. From there, they tracked the scent toward Troy, but lost it at a barn on the outskirts of the city. The so-called sausage note found downstairs was compared against the letters found in Donato's rooms. It was the opinion of many that the handwriting did not match, and that the note, used by some more unscrupulous newspapers to add weight to the notion of Donato's potential guilt, was not the work of the Italian at all, but likely of one of the mourners. The Sheriff's Department of Rensselaer County offered a $1,000 reward for the person who tracked down the missing farmhand. On December 17th, Governor John Dix offered a a further $2,000 reward, saying, I feel very keenly about the situation, and believe every effort should be made by the authorities to bring the murderer to justice. But the same day, with no sign of Donato... An idea entered the heads of the authorities that he might not be the killer after all, but might be a fourth victim. Donato's dead body, however, proved to be just as elusive as his live one, and still he was unfound. And also, Mary, Edith, Blanche, and Arthur Mourner were buried that day. The funeral was to be held at noon, but by dawn, crowds were beginning to gather at the house. By 11.30, nearly 5,000 people were present, blocking the roads. When the coroner allowed the public access to the house in order to view the remains, there was a stampede. The sheriff and his deputies were required to step in to keep order. Finally, the four bodies were removed from the house and transported to the Blooming Grove Cemetery in nearby DeFriestville. Through the course of the investigation, There were many men arrested under suspicion of being Donato, though, to be fair, the description of the suspect issued was an extremely vague one. He was 5'6", a fairly small man at only about 120 pounds, with black hair and a dark complexion. That really doesn't narrow the suspect pool down very much, and the description fit any number of Italian immigrants to say nothing of anyone else who got swept up in the net. The sheriff received word that on December 14th, the same day as the bodies of the mourners were being found, a man answering the description was in Hudson, inquiring about passage to Pittsfield, Massachusetts. For his part, the bartender in Hudson who met this man was well acquainted with Arthur, with Edward Donato and was certain that it was him. The Pittsfield connection, as well, might make sense as Donato had roomed there with an Antonio Brunier. On December 15th, a suspicious-looking man was arrested on Main Street in Buffalo. He was wandering the streets at about 3 a.m. near the Lackawanna Railroad Station. The man, who gave his name as Anthony Morey of Syracuse, was released five days later after he was confirmed to not be the killer of the mourners. The same day, another Italian, giving the name Samuel Raymond, arrived in Coxsackie. He applied for a job working on the railroad, and was later arrested at the Cobblestone Inn. When arrested, a letter was found in his pocket addressed to Edward Donato, so he was transported to Rensselaer County in question, whereupon it was discovered the, that the arresting officers had read the address incorrectly. It was an Edward D. Donato, not Donato, and the man lived in Ohio besides. An 18-year-old girl named Vera Vandenberg confirmed that it was definitely not Donato, although a friend of the mourners named John Bonnaker carried on the belief that the man was the killer. On the 16th, a message was received from a shopkeeper named, named Ellie Griffing in Heartlake, Pennsylvania, in the northern section of the state near Montrose. He said that a suspicious-looking man answering the description supplied of Donato had been seen in town with blood-stained trousers. The suspicious individual came back to Griffing's shop that evening, and he placed him under arrest. He was brought to the Montrose Jail and questioned. It came out that he was actually a 16-year-old boy named Morgan Williams. Son of two Welsh immigrants, Williams had run away from his home in Scranton since he wanted to drop out of school and work for the railroad and not go back to school as his mother wanted. He made it to Binghamton, New York, and after failing to get a job, was making his way back home when arrested. He was released on December 21st. Catherine Williams, Morgan's mother, intended to sue Griffin for the wrongful arrest of her son. Another suspect was arrested at the Boston and Maine Railroad Station in Williamstown, Massachusetts, the next morning. The night operator at the station, Orlando Ramsdahl, noticed a man loitering and acting strangely. He thought he looked like Donato. The man spoke stammering English, the newspapers focused on how he sometimes spoke well, and sometimes seemed not to understand, as if that was evidence of his guilt, when it was likely evidence only that English wasn't his first language. The man's name in this instance was first given as Charles Alley, although he later admitted that his name was actually Antonio Serrado. He also was released. On the 18th, an arrest was made in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Like all the others, he was not Donato, but here some questions present themselves. The man's name was Benjamino Di Donato. Was this man the one reported to have been seeking passage to Pittsfield by the Hudson bartender a few days before? Remember it had been confirmed that Donato had indeed been in Pittsfield years before. Perhaps someone who remembered Donato heard the arrested man referred to by his last name and believed it was Edward. Other arrests came in and in the following days. Two men in Troy, John Cazola and Dominic Jonavezi. Caro Loretti in Gloversville. The police from Watervliet thought that a man that they had in jail for killing his brother-in-law, Pat Angelo, might actually be Donato. He wasn't. And as the year closed, authorities were no closer to finding Edward Donato than they had been three weeks before. On February 24th, 1912, Louis Ferger, a contractor from Long Island City, was approached by an Italian he had formerly employed, one Bartholomew Salerno. On December 18th, 1911, Salerno had come to work for Ferger, and the contractor felt that the man resembled the description of Donato. He notified local authorities, who advised him to keep Salerno employed, but to keep an eye on him. Salerno mysteriously went absent around the end of January, and now almost a month later he reappeared and demanded the month's worth of wages. But the contractor had heard from other employees that Salerno planned to rob and kill him. Ferger had him arrested. On February 29th, Chester Ostrander came to, New- to Long Island City to view the prisoner. He said that although he did look somewhat similar, he couldn't say for certain if it were Donato or not. Salerno had to be released. In 1933, Salerno was again in the news, this time alleging that an Anthony DeMont had tried to extort $50 from him and claimed that he'd put 14 bombs under Salerno's home unless he paid. Earlier that month, the Buffalo newspapers, among others, incorrectly reported that Jesse Morner had killed his entire family with a rifle and then shot himself. They printed a retraction the next day. On May 13, 1912, a man was arrested in Messina, just south of the Canadian border, on charge of running a disorderly house in the company of a woman named Blanche Blyce. What exactly the case was is unclear, while d- running a disorderly house as a charge might refer to running a brothel. The same charge was also used for, say, someone who owns a bar where fighting is habitual. In this case, though, my money would be on the former. The man was an Italian who first gave the name Matty Conzani, but who was eventually discovered to be a Matteo Placentino. He attempted suicide several times following his arrest, but on May 17th was taken to Troy. Blanche Blyce had said that Placentino had told her that in the summer of 1911 he had lived in Albany. He had mentioned being acquainted with a farmer across the river, which doesn't narrow it down very much, to be fair but he had said that the farmer's name was Moran. Blanche animated to the police that the name was actually Morner, not Moran, and that Placentino was actually Edward Donato. He was released from the Troy jail the next day, however, since three people, the tailor Mrs. Mrs. McCann, Mrs. Alonzo Schaller, Mrs. Morner's sister, and Horatio Mould, the milkman who had discovered the bodies, all agreed that the two were not the same person. Shortly after the murders in December 1911, an Armenian man named Tony Tash was visiting relatives in Manchester, Vermont. While there, he was seen by an amateur detective by the name of Henry Wyman, who thought that Tash looked like the description of Edward Donato. Wyman traveled to the scene of the crime, spoke with residents, and in late January, he tried to get authorities from Bennington involved. Learning the young man came from North Adams, Massachusetts, he then went there, found Tony Tash, and tricked him into coming to work for him on his farm back in Manchester. When Tash arrived there, Henry Wyman promptly turned him into the authorities. The police back in New York very quickly determined the fraudulent arrest, and Tony Tash was released. Then began lengthy legal proceedings, in which Tash sued Wyman for $900 charging false imprisonment. The civil suit concluded on June 16th, with Tash being awarded the money he sought. Wyman's lawyers haggled, saying that the penalty was too severe. They managed to get the amount Wyman needed to pay reduced to just $100. But Wyman never paid up. A second trial ensued, therefore, and on December 5th, 1913, the two parties reached a settlement, with Wyman agreeing to pay Tash $200 as well as paying all fees for his prosecution. Victorino Tataschiori was arrested on August 28, 1912 in Meriden, Connecticut. At first, he was believed to be Edward Donato, but again, such was quickly determined to not be the case. Then police from Ossining, New York, thought he might have been Tony Fiotto, wanted for robbing and killing an old man there. But this, too, was found to not be the case, and Tataschiori was freed. In 1914, legal matters were settled, and Jesse Mourner inherited all the money from his mother and siblings, totaling $12,000, a relatively paltry sum nowadays, but in 1911, quite a bit of money indeed. Edward Donato never was located, although tips came in for years afterward. At one point, authorities found themselves traveling to San Francisco to track down a potential Donato, and as late as the 1940s, it was rumored that an inmate at a Poughkeepsie mental hospital was Edward Donato. But of course it wasn't. Jesse Morner died in 1945. The murders of the Mourner family remain open to this day. But there remain questions about whether Donato was indeed the guilty man. It seems fairly likely, to be fair. While the authorities seem to have been pretty convinced it was Edward Donato, it seems not everyone else was. There were the questions raised about whether he were the killer or another undiscovered victim of the same murderer. And it seems that the popular opinion in the neighborhood was different than the one the police subscribed to. Quite a number of people in the area thought that the surviving brother, Jesse Morner, was actually the killer. No one gave any reasons as to why exactly they thought this, although it did occur to me early on in the research that it was just a little bit questionable that almost immediately upon beginning investigation, Jesse Mourner hid on the manure pits as the most likely place for the bodies to be hidden, and that it turned out to be, of course, where they were. And all this when the Mourner's farm covered 90 acres. So are you telling me that on a 90-acre plot of land, the only place that the bodies can be is the one place that they actually are? A witness named Edward de had claimed that he saw Donato in the barn around the time of the killings, seeming to support the case that Donato was the killer. But later, he recanted that testimony. Another set of questions center around the timing of the murders. Most reports indicate that Blanche Mourner was killed first, with a theory that she was assaulted and murdered, and then the other three were killed, either in a rage or to cover up that crime. But it appears that later on in the investigation, opinions were changed, so that now it was Arthur Mourner who was killed first. Why was Arthur's body in a different location from the others? And for that matter, why was he killed in a completely different way than all the others? According to a Rensselaer grocer named John Morris, Arthur Mourner was seen at about 4 p.m. Tuesday, about three hours after his mother and sister were killed. Another thing which makes it a bit unclear is this. According to Horatio Mould, he hadn't seen Arthur for two days, which is what gave rise to his suspicions. Even if he was killed around noontime on the 12th, when the authorities thought the others had been killed, where was he that first night? Mould said that Arthur made deliveries every day. So if he was still alive on the evening of the 11th, where was he? The last question is this. It's unclear exactly how Conrad Morner, the father, died. He had died five years earlier in 1906. He was found lying in a field, and a cause of death was never really determined. Around the same time as Conrad's death, a neighbor named Frederick Kipp was found dead in his barn. He had killed himself in a fairly odd manner. His death certificate read, We find that Frederick Kipp died by his own hand, having shot himself in the chest then set his barn afire and laid down to allow himself to be consumed by the flames. Did Conrad simply die a natural death, and Kip's suicide was just an unfortunate coincidence? Or was Kip involved in Conrad's death in some way? In any event, it's just a curiosity, and has no real bearing on the later murders. But with both Jesse Mourner and Edward Donato dead at this point, it's likely that what really took place on that dairy farm outside Albany that day in 1911 will never really be known. And that's the end of this episode. As always, Alyssa's sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Google Map available, marked with the locations of the various episodes. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew signing off. shows like this one at straightupstrange.com